0: We're so glad that you're taking time to listen to this week's message from Bethel Worship Center. Uh, we pray that it blesses you wherever you are in your faith journey. Uh, we do want to let you know that we are open. Our campus is open. Uh, we invite you to go to bwccamden.com. Uh, you can find out everything that we're offering right now at this time and in this season. So make sure to, to, to go there and find the ways that you can stay up to date with everything happening at Bethel Worship Center. But again, uh, wherever you are in your faith journey... Whether you are um, exploring more about faith, learning who Jesus is, learning about God, uh, you're new in your walk with Jesus Christ, or you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, we pray that today's message blesses you, it encourages you, it equips you. So God bless you. Thank you again for taking part. Now, I don't, you may not know this about me, uh, but uh, in, in high school, I ran track, um, and uh, you know and that was the only sport I did, and I did it for a year. I know to look at me, I look like uh, just an athletic specimen, and you probably thought that <laughs> that I played every sport there was while I was in, in school um, and turned down a lot of college opportunities no that 's not the case. Um, I did run track though, um, and uh, I did it for one year, one year only, because my goal was to get a letter and to wear a letter and to have a letter jacket that that's, that was my goal, and I accomplished my goal um, plus the uh, the high school track coach, she was a pretty lady. So that made it worth it as well um, to run. So I ran. I remember one of, one of and, and I use the term ran loosely, okay? Uh, I participated in the in the mile and the two-mile events when we had those. Um, and, uh, and I remember one time, I can't remember if it was Clover or in York. Um, uh, it was one of those in the upstate. We were running. This was a two-mile, and I was running, and I was coming across, and I was... Uh, uh, going across the line. I was actually starting my last lap, but as I was crossing that line, they handed me a popsicle stick. Now these popsicle sticks were what were marking your place when you finished the race. (laughs) I I was starting my last lap. They thought I was finishing the race. Okay. You put two and two together there. All right. So this sticks at eighth place. I look at it. My eyes get big. I look up to that coach and she looks at me and she says, take it, take it, take it. I wasn't going to judge her character. I took it and I went to her and she gave me a hug. Highlight of my high school track career. It was, you know, so, uh, so that's, uh, that's that's how that happened. Um, but uh, I was never an Olympic hopeful, if you're wondering. So, um, but I do I do love the Olympics, and I, I love. I don't, is anybody watching the Olympics? Anybody, some people watching the Olympics online. Maybe you're watching Olympics. Um, I, I love it. I love watching the sports that you don't always get to see: handball, uh, water polo, badminton table tennis, those sports don't get a lot of love on TV, right? But I love watching those sports. Those people impress me. But I also love the races. You know, you may love the races. I love watching these races. Um, and there's one thing about the races. Every race, doesn't matter what race it is, they all have a starting point, right? There's always that place where they start. Um, and, uh, and, and, and for track, on the sprinters, they always start with these things right here. The uh, The starting block, right? You've, maybe you've seen them. Now, this is an older one. I appreciate Luke Elgin High School track team. Don't fall off. Allowing me to, uh, to use this as a visual this morning. But they start with these, the starting block, right? It's interesting. I, I found this out. In the, in, it was in the 1930s when they actually started using wooden blocks as starting blocks. And they did that because the people who would start their races, they would dig holes, their, their sprints. They would dig holes in the ground. Now, you can imagine that probably wasn't the best for running uh, when people come behind them, right? Um, but, uh, but they would dig holes in the ground. Of course, not everyone was equal. And so when they made starting blocks, started using wood blocks, it gave everyone a, an advantage uh, or it gave everyone an even playing field. No one had a, an advantage in their starting block. Now, today, they're all uh, just increased with technology. You know when someone, uh, it's easy to tell when a false start is taking place and all that kind of stuff. But the thing about racers and runners, when they practice, they spend a ton of time practicing and preparing for their start. A lot of time on it. I don't know if you if you watch the swim swim meets and the swim competitions. Uh, uh, the Caleb Dressel, I think, is his name. The new Michael Phelps. Um, you know, it, you will hear them talk often about his start how great his start is, and how he has one of the best starts, and that's what gives him the advantage. And you think about how much time he spends practicing that start. Uh, Sprinters, they do the same thing. They practice, the the, the time they spend practicing, a lot of that is spent on preparing, but why? Because they know that it is important to prepare so that you are ready and set to go when you need to go. Because especially in these events, if you have three false starts, you are eliminated, From the Olympics, you're eliminated from the competition. So you can work and work and work and work and improve your speed and make yourself extremely fast. But if you're not good off the blocks and you false start three times and it's happened, you can be eliminated. So all that work means nothing. So the work that you spend in the time getting ready and set to go is just as important as the time you spend going and working, and doing. And that's what I want us to look at over these next few weeks, these next three weeks together. I want us to think about, I want us to look at how ready are we? Where are we? And how prepared are we to go where God is calling us to go and and to be used by the Holy Spirit, how he wants us to be used. Now, you know, I mentioned COVID and and you know, you've seen how our world has been impacted by this pandemic, right? Right? We have seen a lot of things change in our world and the church is no different. We've seen a lot of things change. Now, one thing it hasn't impacted is is COVID has not impacted and stopped God's ability to still move, the Holy Spirit's ability to still work in people's lives. God is still moving. God is still redeeming. God is still restoring. God is still healing. God is still bringing peace. He's still bringing joy. He's still bringing salvation. Amen. God is still at work. The church will never be stopped. We had that promise from Jesus, right? We've proclaimed that over and over. Jesus made that promise. The church will not be stopped. But there's no denying the fact that things change. And one thing that we hear often is, I can't wait to get back to normal. I can't wait to get back to the way things were, right? Because in our minds, we're often, we're, we like going back to what's familiar, more than we like the unknown of what's ahead. But sometimes God may be moving us towards something that we're not necessarily familiar with. So we have to be cautious not to want to go back to what's familiar if that's not what God wants us to go back to. But it's in our nature. I think back to the the Old Testament to the Israelites. You know, when when God freed them from Egypt... If you know the passage of scripture, you see it in Exodus, God, God frees them. And they, they, uh, we talked about this a couple of months ago when we were looking at this passage, he didn't take them down the easy road or down the quickest route. I should say he, he took them a different way and, and things began to get a little difficult on that route. And so what did they start doing? They started making statements like we should have never left Egypt. In other words, what they were saying is I regret the prayers that I prayed for God to freed me from this place. Because they were were in their minds thinking, I'd rather go back to the difficulty of Egypt than the difficulty of the unknown with God. I'd rather go back under the tyranny of Pharaoh than the difficulty even in the freedom that God is trying to give me. We have to be careful. But listen, God was preparing them. God God took them this way. We said this a few months ago. You can read it. It's in Exodus. You can read it. He took them this way because they weren't ready to go the other way. They weren't ready to face the Philistines. So he had to take them another way to work a process in them to get them ready for what he wanted them to do. We can't be afraid of the unknown of what God wants to do in us. As followers of Christ, we always have to have the mindset in our lives that, that, that we want to move in the direction that God is leading us instead of moving back to where we used to be and what we think is just comfortable. And the disciples, they spent three years learning from Jesus. And the disciples got comfortable being around Jesus. Every day was a new adventure. Every day was full of something. They were witnessing so many great things. And they wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus knew this. That's why he began telling them, look, I'm not going to be with you always. I'm going to have to leave. John chapter 16, you can write that passage of scripture down. You can go back to it and do a Bible study in it this week. He's telling them, look, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you someone else. I've got to leave. I can't be with you forever. But I'm going to give you someone else who can walk with you, who can journey with you, who will be with you. The disciples wanted to be with them. When, when Jesus te- taught hard, hard things and people began to leave, the, Jesus looked at the disciples and said, are you guys going to leave too? And what was their response? Where, where will we go? I believe that they were hungry for what Jesus was teaching, but I also believe they were dependent upon being with him. They needed Jesus. They literally didn't know what they were going to do if they weren't with him. And so, when Jesus was arrested and taken away from them, that was hard on the disciples. When Jesus was crucified and hung on the cross and put to death, that was hard on the disciples. It was difficult for them. When his body was in that tomb, they didn't know what to do. They were hiding, they they were wondering, what is next? What are we supposed to do? And then all of a sudden, they hear he's been resurrected, he's not in the tomb. So what do they do? It says that Peter and John, we see in scripture, they run back to find what? His body. They run back to find the physical body of Jesus. They want to be around the physical body of Jesus. And then Jesus appears to them. And then, then they, Jesus starts spending time with them again. And now the disciples are back to what they knew was comfortable, what they knew, what they enjoyed, what they liked. It was being with Jesus physically in his presence. And this takes us to our passage of scripture where we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 1. Where Jesus has been spending some time with his disciples. But again, he's about to leave them. And you may know this, but Luke, a physician, he's the one that's writing the book of Acts. He had written the gospel of Luke that we read. And he's written these to a guy named Theophilus. Because he's telling them and sharing with him everything that he has witnessed and learned about Jesus from others. And everything he has seen this church do. He is hes intrigued. He's captivated by Jesus. And what these who followed him were doing. So in Acts chapter 1 we jump in and the beginning of this new book that he's writing to Theophilus. He says, In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instruction through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. That's what we read about in John chapter 16. And then he says this, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him. And look at what they keep asking This goes to show you that, that they're getting from, uh, getting comfortable again with Jesus. They kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Their mind goes right back to their original agenda for the Messiah. And Jesus replied to him. He said, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is, this is you know, the disciples, you know, they, they, they want to know. They, they want to put their focus and their attention back on their agenda. God, this is what Jesus, this is what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to come free us from the captivity we're under. From this governmental structure that is not fair to us. He's supposed to free us from, from this. this is, so is now the time, okay, you've done your thing, you've died, you, you, you beat Del, Heth, Heth, death, hell, and, and the grave. That was pretty awesome, by the way. You did that. But now, okay, are we going to restore Israel? Are, is this where we get to sit beside you in leadership over the situation and everything that's going on? And Jesus doesn't necessarily ignore their question, but he kind of deflects their question and says, that's not, only God knows that. Only the father knows that. And that's really not for you to worry about. That's not what I'm asking you to focus on. In other words, this, and and then he tells them what he wants them to focus on. He keeps having to readjust the disciples focus and what they were doing. And he's telling them, stop focusing on your agenda, what you want done, and just do what I am telling you you're supposed to do right now. See, he's letting them know you have got to get yourself back to a place where you can get yourself ready and set to launch into this movement through the church that we're about to start. And then we get to the next part of the passage. in uh, Verse 9. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Now, if we think about this passage, it's, it's a little humorous for me, when, my, my mind, when I think about it. Maybe it is for you too. But they're standing there. Jesus is talking to them. And then all of a sudden, he just starts going away. And they're just kind of watching. And it, and it says that they're straining, trying to see Where would he go? You see him? Wait, I think he's right there. You know, they're, they're trying to find where he went. And I'm wondering in their mind, are they thinking back to that day when all of a sudden they looked out over the water and they saw this ghost-like figure walking on the water. And then they realize it's Jesus and Peter's like, Jesus, that's you tell me to come. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets on the water, starts walking to him. I wonder if Peter's back there going, is he trying to fly with Jesus? You know? Is he? Is that what's in Peter's mind? Is he thinking maybe? I, but G- Jesus didn't call them to that. He had called. Yet he had called them and commissioned them to something else. And so these men had to come again and refocus them and say, "Hey, hey, hey! What are you guys looking at? He'll be back. But he's told you to go do something." It, it reminds. I don't. Maybe you have a better life than me. But sometimes when I'm at home and nothing's on. I'll turn it over and watch Guy's Grocery Games. I don't know if you watch that. But they, they have this, this a competition, three people, they got to cook something, and he gives them what they got to cook. He tells them what they got to go into the store to get, the, the items they got to prepare to get ready to come back and make what they're going to make. And when he tells them to go, he has this very subliminal way in which he does it. You know, he'll count down three, two, one, and then he'll say go. Not all times go. This might be a word synonymous with it, but it's kind of a part of his whole thing and part of his show and they don't always get it. You know, they're standing there. He said, go, and their time is already ticking and they're just standing there waiting. And then you'll hear the judges in the back who are going to judge what they make saying, go. He's told you to go, go. And then, oh yeah. Okay. Go. That's what these two white robed men are doing. He's told you to go. Stop standing here, staring And go. But see, sometimes we become so paralyzed in our fear that we forget to move, even if that movement is one that takes us to a place to get us ready to go to what's next. But we can't become paralyzed in our fear. We've got to be prepared. See, before the disciples could go out, Jesus was calling them to go into a place of prayer. Jesus had already told the disciples. He was sending them someone else. He was sending them someone to be with them. He was sending them an advocate, a counselor, someone to guide them, someone to direct them. So just go start praying until that one comes and he fills you and he leads you. You see, the doors that he was going to open for them were not going to open for them until they got behind closed doors and began seeking him. You know, what Jesus had taught them when he taught them what to pray, we see it in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter six, verse six. He had told them, he said, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't go out there praying in front of everybody, make sure, making sure everybody knows you pray and hears your prayers. What did he tell you? Tell them. He said, go get to a secret place into a room and shut the door behind you and pray. Spend time with me. Take away all the other distractions. Why? Why? Jesus was telling us, he was telling them, he's telling us for the doors to open in your life, in our life, in the church, we have got to get behind closed doors first to see the open doors happen. So the question we need to answer then is what are we doing behind closed doors? Because what we're doing behind closed doors is either going to prepare us in the spirit we're just going to paralyze us in our flesh. So, what are we doing behind closed doors? So, what do the disciples finally do? Verse 12 it says, The apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of about half a mile. And, and when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas, son of James, not the same Judas that had betrayed Jesus. They all met together and were constantly, say that phrase in blue with me, united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So what do they finally do? They went back and they united themselves in prayer. They wrapped their hearts around a unified passion. God use us to be your witnesses. God use us to make disciples, teaching them what you taught us. See, too often we're not of one mind in our prayers. Even getting ready and getting set to do what God's called us to do, we're not, un- because we, we, well, we need to pray about this. We need to pray about this. Well, this is going on. We need to pray about this. We need to pray about this. The disciples were unified in prayer. God, the, what, what, what you've told us to do is that you're going to empower us to be your witnesses, and you've told us to go and make disciples. Let's pray that. God, use us. Empower us to be your witnesses. So they unified themselves in prayer and they became desperate in seeking God. And we'll see that they spent a lot of time in those rooms praying and seeking God over this because they were desperate for God to do something. They were desperate for his presence. Even though they couldn't physically be with him, they were desperate for the presence he was going to give them to do what he had called them to do. So they were united in prayer for his presence to fill them, to be his witnesses and make disciples. So when is the most you spend time in prayer? It's probably when you become desperate over something. When something happens in your life or you get into a bad situation or things are not good, you begin praying. You begin asking others, I need you to pray for me in this. I need you to pray about this. I need you to pray about this. But how often are we desperate for God to move through us? How often are we desperate for God to move through his church? We will not see God move apart from prayer. It's in the scripture constantly. Even Jesus took himself away and spent time with the father praying. God in his sovereign and infinite power still works through the prayers of a submissive and finite people. We have got to spend time unified in prayer, asking God, what do you want us to do? There's a story about a guy by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear. Uh, this happened in 1857. If you you can go to CS Lewis Institute online, has a, a more a bigger article about this. I'm just going to give you the cliff notes. But um, this Jeremiah Lanfear, he was a businessman in 1857. He was burdened over the spiritual condition of his city and where he lived. So it. it what we're told is that he went to his small church in New York City into a room and he began to spend time in prayer, just seeking God and asking God one simple question. And that question was, Lord, what would you have me to do? God, what would you have me to do? So the Lord led him to start having a prayer time. So he invited other businessmen. They were gonna pray one day a week. And his invitation was very simple. He said, come when you can, leave when you must. There's no pressure. Let's just come and let's pray. One day a week, this room will be open for one hour. So on September 23rd, 1857, it said that he started his first time of prayer. He went in this room and he began to pray. And it says about a half hour into that prayer, someone joined him and then a couple others started joining him. And about six people joined him that day. The next week, there were 20. The next week, there were 40. And by January, three months after he started, it said that they were meeting on three levels of the building that they were in. Spending time in prayer over their colleagues, their city, and asking God, Lord, what would you have us to do? By March, it said that 6,000 were gathering daily in New York City, 6,000 in Pittsburgh, 2,000 in Chicago, 4,000 in Philadelphia. There were prayer meetings in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Cincinnati, New Orleans, and Mobile. Prayer was erupting all across. It said by May, from the contacts and connections that these people had, they estimated 50,000 people in New York City had trusted Christ as their Savior. A newspaper wrote, reported that in New England, there were several entire towns who had given their life to Christ. The whole towns. Which is sad to think place those towns are in now. I'll go to conferences, I'll listen to people who are trying to plant churches in the New England area, and they say it's one of the hardest areas to plant a church, because of the closed-off mindsets of the people there. But it was estimated that for a period of months, 50,000 people a week were accepting Christ across America. By early 1859, about a year and a half after he started his prayer, they estimated that there was about one million people who had given their life to Christ. The population in 1859 of America was 30 million. One thirtieth of the nation had given their life to Christ because one man decided, I'm going to invite people to pray. Now, some people say those numbers are a little exaggerated, but here's the thing. there obviously something huge was happening because it was getting reported on. And whether it was a million or a little bit less or maybe more, we know that God was working and it started because one man said, "Lord, what would you have me to do? So think about it. What would happen? What would happen if if you began to say, God, what would you have me to do? What if God, it, it may not be that, it may be something else, but but what would happen if you said, I, I'm going to invite some people to meet one day a week, every other week, once a month at work, and let's just pray before we get our day started. Let's get there an hour early and let's pray in a back room somewhere. Let's just pray. If it has to be out in the parking lot because the boss don't want us to pray in the building, let's meet in the parking lot. What, what would happen? I met, with, I met with a guy a couple of weeks ago, or last week or two weeks ago. He's a first responder. He wants to get the first responders back together, again, focused on God's work, spending time in prayer and discipleship. It's a burden. God may be placing a burden in you. We've got a couple of ladies that have started praying in the fellowship hall, and now I think more are joining them every Sunday before church starts. They're just praying in that little brick building right there. I'm so thankful for them. those prayers you don't know what can happen from those prayers but are we praying for God to move there's nothing wrong with having our prayer list and the things we want to pray over but when do we set aside our list and our agenda and then we just start praying God move the way you said in your word you want it to move God work through me empower me to be your witness Help me to make disciples. Empower me to be your witness. Help me to make disciples. Show me, God, what I need to do. Our starting block, our starting block is a position of prayer. We are only going to be ready and set to go where he's calling us to go when we begin to pray and see God and say, God, where are you calling us to go? Send us your spirit and help us to trust you to be guided by you. Stand with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you today. God, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you didn't leave us alone. You sent us your Holy Spirit. You sent us someone that would be with us, that would guide us, and would lead us, and would direct us. Father, forgive us for when our hearts and the things we want to, to happen in our life have been more important than what you've wanted to do in our life and through our life. God, help us to get to a place we surrender ourselves in prayer to you. We ask that, we, that your Holy Spirit will begin to fill us and lead us and empower us to be your witnesses. would help us to make disciples. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccambin.com. Go to our contact page. You'll find a link there to request prayer, or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word PRAYER to 803-676-7566, and we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.